Thanks. Welcome to Swerve South. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Swerve South. Um, this is a special uh, Seraphest pop-up edition, also a Halloween one. My name is uh, Dr. Teresa Starkey. I'm the Associate Director for the Sarah Isom Center for Women and Gender Studies, and I am super excited to have a conversation today with two of my colleagues about the movie The Brood, 1979, a Cronenberg film. I'm going to ask my colleagues to introduce themselves. First is Dr. Elizabeth Fennell, and then next will be Dr. Leslie Delassue. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Fennell. I am an instructional assistant professor in the ISOM Center. I teach a lot of sections of Introduction to Gender Studies, and I teach an upper-level gender studies course called Women, Bodies, and Horror that does a lot with body horror, um, and we watch The Brood in that class. All right, and I am Leslie Delisue, and I am an instructional professor of gender studies and film. And I teach gender and sexuality in cinema, in which we do horror. Sometimes we do alien and we do psycho. It's a melodrama in there as well. All right. Thanks. Okay. And um, no one can see Leslie but me and my colleague Elizabeth. But I had to comment, Leslie, on your headphones that has the mic attached to it. You make me think that you should be like on the racetrack at the Indy 500. But anyway, <laughs> I am just, I am just admiring your setup today. So Thank that was, you. that was, that was a bit of a digression. Um, and a shout out, a compliment to what you're wearing. So thinking about this movie with Cronenberg 19, David Cronenberg, 1979, I think about it definitely falling under this idea of body horror. And uh, Lizzie, I know, as you said, you teach this film, so you'll have a lot to say. I think it's an interesting moment to think of what's happening in this 1970s moment in terms of filmmaking um, and the different horror films, right, that come out. And these horror films seem to be tapping into this sort of cultural collective or a zeitgeist moment, right, or sort of feel and I can think of all of these different movies um, that come out on the radar at that in the 1970s. Of course, I think it's 73, and if I'm wrong, correct me, we have The Exorcist. And then 1978, at the other end, we'll have um, Halloween. And then also, is it what, 79, Leslie? We have Alien. Uh, and then in there, also, we have Jaws, right? And then there's so there's so many films, right, in this moment in terms of thinking about this 1970s horror. And then, of course, as I said, we have Cronenberg's film. Um, and then also, too, I have to give this a shout out to this film that you also teach, Leslie, and I have, too. There's also The Stepford Wives, right? So suddenly in this moment, there's so much happening in terms of Hollywood and horror, in terms of thinking about, right, the monster, right, or body horror and paranoia. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn things over to you and say, so what is it about this 1970s moment that you see sort of reflected, perhaps, in Cronenberg's film? Well, when I think about um, something like the relationship to Stepford Wise, I think of the sort of backlash against second wave feminism, where it almost 
I'm thinking of the brood. It almost seems like a kind of male melodrama in some ways, with Frank being this goal-oriented protagonist who um, looks like a 12-year-old. By the way, I just want to put that out there. And how he restores these old homes. And I think about how this is kind of symbolic of like restoring the patriarchal order. And I think of that in connection with the Stepford Wives because of the men's association, right, in Stepford, where they're trying to remake this idyllic moment of this 1950s cult of domesticity. I wanted to add to that. There's a minor moment in the film that you reminded me of when Frank brings the detective to this strange other space the attic apartment that nola and candy were sharing for nine months before she like moved into the soma free institute like for good and he's looking around at like bewildered it's so different from his house it's just this strange like the top of the house was she renting it why is there even a scene where they're looking through this empty space right except to get a picture of like dr raglan and freud next to each other on the wall it's just such a strange space no wallpaper Wow, no wallpaper. So that kind of gets us into the mise-en-scene a little bit of almost everything is yellow, right? I'm looking at this movie and I'm like, this movie is yellow, which also kind of links links to the Stepford Wise. And I think about the short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, how in a way there's also this monstrous feminine aspect in The Yellow Wallpaper too. And it's so interesting that you mentioned that there's no wallpaper in this attic space, which is also where the brood lives, right? In this attic. And I think about the home as like this monstrous womb in the horror film and how you have to like go through all these tunnel-like labyrinthian spaces to get to this, this sort of like primal space. So the attic is almost it's the place where the wallpaper is already torn down or something like this. That's really, I never thought about the attic as this, as maybe this kind of like feminist space that Frank is like, I don't know what to do. He's like Edward Scissorhands or something. (laughs) All right. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to riff on this in a moment too, when you're talking about this idea of the way that space is sort of functioning and also bringing it around to the yellow wallpaper where there's that moment in the house of Nola's mom's house and, and right. Candy's there. She's been just been dropped off and the grandmother, right. Is having her cocktail and here's something, here's something strange, you know, rattling around in the kitchen. I mean, she should be a little more alarmed by the sound, the, the, the number of sounds that seem to be coming from the kitchen. Right. But what we see is out of that wall, out of that pantry space, right pops right like one of the broods so it's 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 in that context it's not necessarily right out of that wallpaper but it's out of this like whole like space right that this thing's emerging and as we're thinking about this film and also the other right murder that happens when the grandfather return right returns to this returns to this house and goes to lie down and take a rest after having a wee little too much to drink because of um you know, his uh, loss and thinking of all the trauma, right, of the family and that they discover after he, right, is hit by what, snow globes, right? Like double fisted, like pounded by this like brood monster with um, that in that moment, the police detective are like, it's been in the house the whole time, right? And that we never, we never looked for something so small, right? And so, so that 
also that that presence had been sort of like haunting the house there as well. So as we're thinking about these spaces, I think there's a moment in which maybe we can kind of like pull back and I'll turn it over to either one of you, but let's sort of frame this moment, right? Frame what the brood is about because we've sort of talked about Nola. We've talked about Frank um, as, <laughs> as the young father, right? Who could be ineffectual in different ways, you know? So what is this back arc of what's happening? Why perhaps is Nola right at this retreat working with Dr. Raglan? Because I think that's a sort of an important part of the structure to pull out and talk about. I might frame this as a family drama, largely, and uh, maybe more specifically a divorce movie. But it is about a couple, Frank and Nola Carvis who have separated their daughter, Candy. She's a kindergartner, I think, a first grader maybe. She's living with Frank and she has weekend visits with her mother who's moved into um, a kind of psychiatric health resort called Soma Free, which is led by the uh, luminary Dr. Raglan. Well, I found also that at this retreat, right, in the snowy woods of the mountains detached from town also, that made me think of certain things from that moment, made me think of things that are going to foreshadow perhaps the shining that'll come later. There are certain things that I was thinking about with that, but also the way that there's that performative public kind of element to this this therapy session that's going on at the very beginning, right, and and the kinds of robes that they're sort of wearing and how they're walking through the therapy to an audience there, right? So there's this, there's a certain, there's a, a double layer of sort of voyeurism for me that's kind of taking place there, right? That like we're we're in it and watching it as the audience, but there's also that other spectator of the community, right, who's watching this drama, right, sort of unfold. Right. And the method of psychoplasmics is very performative as well, right? They're always playing these roles. They're playing out these roles to one another. And so in a way, it, that's the part of that double layer of this performative aspect where I think of Dr. Raglan is like this, he's like a play actor. He embodies these psychic projections of these roles that other people play in, in Nola's life. And his manner is so theatrical. He turns away like like in a soap opera, right? He'll turn away when Nola says something that the role might not like. And yeah, so I do. It's it's super performative in that way. Is that is that something that bad mummies do? Do bad mummies <laughs> do bad mummies do that? Anyway. <laughs> Right, right. And I, I have to say that I'm totally, I'm totally uh, entranced with Oliver Reed right now because earlier this week, uh, just a little bit of backstory. As you know, it is the month of Halloween. I also spend a, the month of Halloween with my significant other, watching as many horror films or Halloweeny thematic TV shows as we can cram into our brains. And we recently watched. Burnt Ashes, which I think is 1976, that also has um, Oliver Reed in it. And if you're thinking along the themes of this idea of like family melodrama, um, you definitely need to put that on your radar as well. 
Um, and, and in that context, that same idea of ineffectual sort of masculinity is at work there. And Karen Black is also in it. And it has um, incredible elements of sort of the Gothic there, too. One of the things I thought about in relation to it being a mel melodrama is when you mentioned, when we're thinking about the performative aspects, also this hysterical father, right, on the bed, like, oh, oh, oh the, he, he's like the horror, and this is right before he gets killed, um, and I just think about, the like, the ineffectual father, right, there's so many moments where you know, the shot reverse shot pattern um, that establishes a point of identification with Frank, where he literally is paralyzed by what he's seeing. And this hysteria, I think, that these men experience makes me go back to this idea of to what extent are horror, some horror films, right, male melodramas. I mean, I think of The Stepford Wives and how that's, this is like a hysterical reaction to second wave feminism. That leads me to think about Nola and how she is perhaps not hysterical in the same way. She almost has this understanding of these, or she's tied to the secrets of the family, right? This this nuclear family going back to, you know, the the brood, the little brood children popping out in, from the unseen regions like the cabinet and it's a serial because they they're destroying right this veneer of normalcy how it's almost like nola is understands this she this is part of her psyche whereas with frank with nola's father they they're unable to deal with it completely and that makes me think of candy and how she, she was almost too calm Right. This is what the psychiatrist says when he's talking to Frank. Like, it's disturbing that she wasn't more hysterical about this. And so to what extent is there a, a men's hysteria kind of going on here? I like that. I like also framing it. You know, we were talking about body horror. And so we should step back and say that we're using Linda Williams framework about body genres, which are pornography and then horror and then also melodrama. So I like that rather than approaching it as horror, you're thinking of it as male melodrama, which itself sort of bleeds into the horror genre. These are men's fears are um, women who feel so much but are able to control the surface and maybe control or more deeply understand that the covered doors can be punched open, milk can fly out explosively, that like this domestic veneer is so porous. So I appreciate that framing. And I think that the moment when Candy is, when we start to really understand her is like so deeply traumatized that she's going to be repeating the cycle of Nola's life. I mean, it's throughout the movie, right? Frank even says, I think to the teacher, he says something like, I'm so worried that she's going to end up just like her mother. Meanwhile, Nola at Soma Free is saying, Frank thinks that Candy is going to end up repeating my traumas their motivations are like really on the surface. And so it becomes more a game of like what, what kind of monstrosities live below the surface or what kind of like physical manifestations, you know, if we're saying directly like, yes, we are all worried that Candy will end up repeating the cycle of trauma and abuse that her own mother experienced. It's like, well, how can we make that more literal? And how can we turn that into a spectacle that could actually disrupt 
a viewer's sense or like, you know, reset our sense of like how terrible this trauma is for children, just enduring a parent separation or child abuse. Yeah. And it, and, and one of the things that I just thought of as we're talking about this idea of, right, sort of the family melodrama weaving in like the elements of the Gothic or right, or that's notion of the monstrous and also right. The return of the repressed is here as well. Was it, 1979 as well is that also when Kramer versus Kramer came out because I'm thinking about right the idea of as when you said this notion of sort of like parent separation and then earlier you said Leslie that's like you know uh, it's this sort of feminist kind of backlash because also I think of that was one of the things too um in Kramer versus Kramer right there's that sort of backlash uh, that the mother the mother steps out right of the family circle and then in this moment right Nola has stepped out into the the retreat of the wilderness with Dr. Raglan and the um, performance therapy sessions that are happening there but she, yeah she stepped out of the family circle for herself um, in that way uh, so yeah that's an interesting sort of thing to think about too right and I know that Cronenberg actually did say that this was kind of his version of Kramer versus Kramer but it's more he said but it's more realistic (laughs) Um, so that uh, that's kind of also an interesting take that the that this horror kind of gothic aspect is actually bringing is is making more manifest these these issues that remain repressed or unseen so thinking about the return of the repressed and how stepping outside of this family circle creates the space where um, Nola can express what is otherwise repressed her desires these repressed emotions and reactions and I think about how the film frames this is it can only be monstrous right it when when a woman expresses when she has this freedom right or this space to express repressed desires they're going to be monstrous and i think about how that's it in this movie it gets tied to these primal ability to reproduce um and this weird external womb and how that's linked to the a phallus possibly right are these are these brood babies just like Nola's phallus running around expressing its desires (laughs) um yeah so the monstrous feminine kind of comes in here like with the abject as its companion I think centering around Nola and this moment of expression of what remains repressed in this nuclear family kind of setup I think it's worth describing the members of the brood are these um sort of child-shaped beings their face are, are a bit mask-like and their hands are sort of veiny and aged. So it's hard, it's hard to date them in terms of like, do they, are they children? Are they small adults? And in the movie, they're referred to as a number of really hilarious things, including, um, you know, the sort of like uh, Dr. Raglan's literal interpretation of them through the psychoplasmic schema. He calls them the children of Nola's rage. So like maybe that's a little too on the nose, but um, a doctor performing an autopsy on one of them refers to it tenderly as this little fella. <laughs> little fella. So they get strangely gendered, maybe just because they're associated with these like violent acts of rage, or I think because they are 
associated with the phallus. Uh, they're referred to in a newspaper as dwarf killers. And then, of course, a range of, you know, more insulting names like they're freaks or they are deformed children. And then at one point, a detective links them to says, you know, this wouldn't be the first time that a mother had locked up a quote unquote deformed child in the attic. And now it's seeking like rage and vengeance. Right. So it's again, it's like the attic, the, the bad mummy locking up this little fella. <laughs> And I have to say, uh, Lizzie, I appreciate all of the things that you just checked from the film in terms of thinking about the autopsy scene, the newspaper headline, right, that's describing. I was also thinking about that autopsy scene in the moment and the weird sort of milk of magnesia hue that it's sort of the, the, the lighting of yes, it it's in so that room spooky. is so strange. It almost, it's almost like... Um, when you're thinking about Halloween and going to sort of like a makeshift haunted house and it might be the kind of light that's like set up right in this like weird, like low budget kind of way. <laughs> and there's that, and then there's the tiny corpse right on the table. And the other thing that stands out, the doctor noted also was that it had no belly button, right? And so that in itself was the lack of connection to any sort of maternal right entry into this world, so to speak. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting is that that the the, bot, the bodies of the deceased had, had bite marks, but that this um, corpse didn't actually have teeth, but had like, what was it, a beak-like kind of structure? So that even also is sort of <laughs> horrific, horrific as well. <laughs> so, yes, and like, and as you said, and they're all, by the way, can we just talk about their fashion sense, right, in terms of the brood and how they're running around in this film as well. I think that's important to note that um, that maybe next year, the three of us could dress like that for- Such a good idea. <laughs> and do a Halloween portrait where we wear, we wear, we wear uh, you know, snow jackets and snow pants, right? And uh, in terms of like solid colors of like orange, yes, red. Or they're like always blue, dressed in these. Well, know? and it's Toronto, so it's cold. And somehow the broods have been clothed. Like they have pajamas and they have these snowsuits. So there's a way that like, you're not sure who I think we're I think we're supposed to think that it's Nola. There's a way that they they're being cared for really tenderly, right? They do live in that attic or the sort of woodshed, but they live it looks like they're at camp. They live in bunk beds, you know, like they they assume some sort of it's like a small little family camp. And so they're wearing these snowsuits that make them blend in with children, which is of course one of the one of the ways they're able to deceive people and eventually murder. Candy's teacher, but um, but they also are her peers. Like I wonder how how you all see them interacting with Candy because they protect her, but they can kind of turn on her. And I don't know if that's just like a representation of you know this the, a mother's twisted love, the fear and nurturing that comes from relationships with mothers in horror films. Why do they have to be like little children? She told Frank, Nola told Frank, I'll kill Candy before I let you take her from me. So there is this kind of mixed, I mean, she's almost also too like this phallus, this phallic object that's being fought over, right? Who this so there's this, she's in a way like 
a manifestation of some kind of power that's that they're fighting over kind of and then i think about and i i don't know if i'm remembering this right but don't they all have blonde bangs yes so in a way there's this this element of mise-en-scene like costuming that aligns them with candy as well and just thinking back to how at the end she has these little spots that are sort of you know there's this foreshadowing that she will also have her own brood one day yeah so there and the one moment where they're they're kind of antagonistic is i remember that the one of the little brood uh little fellas um has his hands wrapped around the railings on the stairs and looks at Kitty's like ah! and then and then like disappears and the yes. blood is like the, from the fingerprints are left <laughs> and she's just kind of staring at yes. this these little bloody uh fingerprints that are left over oh my goodness yeah yeah i was mesmer i was kind of really interested in her siblings right exactly it's like um siblings but future children it's very strange <laughs> It's true. They hiss. Yeah, they hiss, and like you said, just the, the like you, you can't differentiate what age they actually are. And the other thing I found interesting is they seem to have their own sort of, or as the the doctor in the autopsy room referred to them, their sort of camel hump. And whatever that camel hump or balloon like thing that's on their back gives them sort of like their energy and life force. But I guess like once it's once it's depleted, right? That 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 that's it. So yeah, it's like they're running around with their little battery packs on is what it makes makes me think of too, right? They're like charged up and then they only have like a certain amount of time, right, to be in this world or potentially to um, act out the retribution uh, for NOLA, um, which can take shape on mom, dad, and then also future threat, right, the, um, the school teacher. But yeah, I think there's something there to the anxiety about children themselves right as as this odd uncanny sort of thing and i think that that's another thing we can tease out in terms of thinking about the history of hollywood and movies as well this idea of right right the monstrous child or the strange uncanny child right that's somehow other Hmm. um yeah so much going on right so like thinking about you you mentioned before the exorcist and how the body of the child is somehow vulnerable to corruption that disrupts um, the patriarchal order or the symbolic order uh, in terms of the uncanny. Um, and also the idea that with the, with the battery packs that they're, they're expendable, like these ph- phallic objects, the woman can produce them again and again um they're expendable so it's another rendering of um what am i trying to say it's sort of like an unnatural ability to reproduce a phallus how that relates to the ability to reproduce in general um that the womb is somehow this repressed power that maybe even threatens phallic power. Yeah, threatens power in some way. And I, I think, Elizabeth, maybe you can talk about this too, because I think you mentioned it earlier, her ability to wear, her ability to reproduce, right? And suddenly 
she says, I, I'm paraphrasing right her dialogue, but where suddenly she stands up right and she raises her gown and reveals, right, reveals her reveals her womb and or this outer womb, so to speak. And before she gets to that moment, she's like, I've been on such a strange, right, wondrous journey. And can you understand? And Frank's like, inside voice is going, no, I can't. I'm, but outside voice is like, yes, yes, tell me. Tell me about this, right? This this journey. I I want to know. <laughs> so talk about this. Yeah, this sort of monstrous body and this ability, right, of sort of like reproduction uh, that could also have Frank worried for a number of other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a lot to worry about. When Nola reveals herself, when she reveals this like monstrous new form of like a, a new maternal, a monstrous maternal body with this like outside womb and then tears it open in an animalistic way and let's say cleans the new brood spawn in an, in, a, in a relatively animalistic way, a monstrous way, she licks it clean. Um, she says to him, she's like in testing Frank to see like, is he really going to go along on this ride with me? I started to think, like, is this just a sort of flattened pregnancy metaphor where he just kind of cannot handle the changes that her body is going through? She says to him, I disgust you. I sicken you. You know, and like she's realizing it. She's disappointed. He's disappointed about the whole situation. <laughs> they cannot come together on this. You know, it's like maybe at one point they made a decision to work through some kind of like, yes, we'll go on this reproductive journey together. But he is now completely sickened by what's actually manifested when he actually sees it. I felt like maybe he kind of double backed on his promise. I would also note that he recognizes that he's no longer needed, right? Like there's no, there's no Frank's not even in the equation anymore mm. when it comes to, um, right. The reproduction of these brood like children. It's uh, that his role is outdated. <laughs> she, right. she has, she has, she has surpassed him, right? right? And that actually this monstrous body has actually perhaps become a wondrous body, right? With the ability to sort of reproduce in this way, in this capacity that has perhaps excelled, right? Expectation, so. Absolutely. Yeah, the, her, her body has become such a spectacle. I also find it interesting that the patients, the men patients, their manifestation of psychoplasmics is like this thing that acts on their body in an antagonistic way. Kill it, I mean, basically killing and damaging their own body. So the guy with the limps, like these weird little, ooh, I just don't even know, but they're like these little weird growths, like maybe little micro penises hanging or something like this. And it's attacking his body and making it impossible for him to circulate blood. And then the guy who has all these weird bite marks from the rejection from his father. And it's like Nola, her psychoplasmic manifestation is this thing that's actually an extension of her that goes out into the world and manifests her repressed desires. Whereas these other, the men, their bodies are just, it's attacking them their bodies instead. So there's another way that her generative powers are almost doubled in this moment. So it's again, that this weird, hist this hysteria around re the ability to reproduce. 
then Frank, right, cuts the cycle, right? So with, sorry, spoiler there in terms of thinking uh, with his last interaction with sort of Nola. But as we're thinking about this film and the way that it ends, it makes me think of other 70s films in which we have the close-up is actually, if I'm not mistaken, on Candy. Is that right? That it sort of ends with like a close-up of that grainy sort of like photo feel and she, she's and it's of her eyes and she's got those tears that are sort of that are there um and i just think about that how many movies from the 70s there's that last shot where it's the close-up maybe of that protagonist's face or it's that long shot where they're probably in the distance walking sort of in isolation so candy's actually the last right the last thing that we sort of see right and it, it, this is afterwards but i think about the omen, I think, ends with Damien turning around and kind of like looking back at the camera while everything's like burning behind him. Um, so kind of similar uh, final shot with this gaze of this child, right? This perhaps monstrous child. Or even Carrie's hand reaching up from the earth. It's like this last grasp it's always some some like cinematic gesture to the future and the future is bleak <laughs> and the future is bleak lizzie it is and i think about that in all in so many of those 1970s moments it's that uh it's that there's that paranoia that's there there's that anxiety and then i think a lot of those films end with this sense of ambiguity too right that it's not going to give you that clean right kind of ending or sort of wrap right and just a little industrial kind of interjection is it's ripe for a sequel too <laughs> the brood too <laughs> the second brood they're all members of the brood, which, by the way, the brood could also be the name of a band anyway. Uh, and then also it could be the fashion line of the Cronenberg, right, industry in terms of films, in terms of, in terms of winter wear, right, as a children's line. Uh, I could see that stuff happening. Maybe that could be the next thing that we begin working on and collaborating together. So, brood gear. Brood gear, brood gear, exactly. You heard it and it happened here. <laughs> I'm going to get me some. Uh, hey, so before before we wrap this up, and I'm excited that we had the opportunity to watch this film, right, and come together and sort of talk about it. What Halloween movies, horror movies, might you recommend since uh, this is the month of October and we are quickly, right, approaching Halloween? Specifically for October? I mean, thinking very narrowly about Halloween themed movies. I loved House of the Devil. I think the director was Ty West. Yes. Have either of you seen that from a few years ago? It's about um, a young babysitter and feels very, it's one of these movies that, uh, Teresa, I think you've been You've been observing that this is happening, that there's a like a, like a visual nostalgia for 70s films. And this is one of those horror films, maybe in horror, the visual nostalgia is for like 80s films or late 70s, early 80s films, like, you know, something like Stranger Things. But House of the Devil really led that revival. Um, and it is also chilling and violent. So I recommend it. 
I second that. That's a good one. Lizzie, what about you? I mean, Lizzie, what's another one I should say? Give us two. <laughs> Let's see. Another one. I'm really looking forward to the new Halloween. I think, what is it called? Halloween Kills? I don't even know what number we're on, but I watched the last uh, incarnation just with my hands flat on a table staring at the TV screen, which is a kind of like intense engagement that I want to be I want to be required to bring to a horror film. And so I feel like I'm along on this ride with Jamie Lee Curtis, as long as she's alive. And I appreciate, I think recently we had a conversation, I can't remember what Zoom room we were in, but um, you referenced October is Jamie Lee Curtis month, yeah. right? Yeah. So <laughs> to you, to me, to all of us, she's on the cover of so many magazines, but just yeah. one month a yeah. year. Yeah. And I was watching, but I fell off, but she was also in Scream Queens too, the TV show. I don't know if you're oh, familiar I never with saw that, that one. Okay. Uh, okay. Yes, definitely. I would definitely check that out, especially the first season. What about you, um, Leslie? What two films might you recommend? Well, okay. So what came to my mind, and this is, I don't even know if I consider this a horror film, but that movie Cabin in the Woods. Yes. It's like, they're basically creating horror scenarios, horror movies, but it's, and I forget his name. I wish I could remember his name right now, but they're producing these horror movies for these ancient ones. And whenever somebody gets killed, the blood runs down all the way into the basement. And there's all these monsters that they keep. Anyway, the cabin in the woods, it's like, it's this sort of uh, reflexive, horror movie but it's it's framed within its own production for these mysterious ancient ones and Sigourney Weaver just comes out at the end like well and here's why this all happens and it's Sigourney Weaver's never in it before and she just like pops out at the end um so yeah Cabin in the Woods I think is is awesome and then I don't know why but the other one that I just found very terrifying and it's not a Halloween, but it's, it's got like kind of monstrous feminine, like archaic mother quality to it is her hereditary. It's terrifying. It's kind of like satanic cults or ancient women's satanic like cult and how you enlist or basically indoctrinate your children into this cult or something along those lines. And who's, I can't remember her name. I don't know why her name is Tony Collette. Yes, thank you. Tony Collette. She's the mother in it. And it's it's very terrifying. Uh there's the sound that is like Can you hear that? That's in it that yes. just Oh goodness, it's like spine tingling. So those are the two movies I'm thinking of that are great. Those are the two and of course we recommend everyone watching The Brood. Right. And in terms of thinking about two Halloween movies, um, that one that ha deals with scenes of or visions of perhaps I would say the solitary unsettling child in interesting kids wear or the red raincoat um, would be Don't Look Now from the 70s would be one of mine. The other would be a more contemporary one with Nicolas Cage, uh, Willie's Wonderland, I believe I'm getting the title right. And if I could, if I could do my own descriptor of uh, what the film could be described as it's Nicolas Cage um, 
meets, oh, the apocalypse as Buster Keaton. Because, spoiler, he never says anything through the entire film. So, yes, it's Nicolas Cage meets Buster Keaton battling the apocalypse. So, those are the two. And uh, I just want to thank Lizzie and Leslie for being here and to tell everyone, hey, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.